church this morning. It's really wonderful to have you with us, especially those of you who are in in the building with us. And for those of you who are online, we're glad to have you with us as well, but we are missing uh, you being in person with us. We hope that you'll be with us again very soon. Uh, It's a large chapter today, uh, and it's got a lot in it, not by way of overwhelming detail, but just personal interaction between all kinds of people. And I think it'd be really helpful for you. I know it'll be helpful for me uh, if you had that passage open uh, as we work through it together. Uh, you'll also notice that there's a service outline sheet that flows through some of what we'll be looking at together today as we work, look at John chapter 9. I wonder which judgments, or perhaps whose judgments, most shape your own self understanding? Who most influence your own perception of who you yourself are? It's difficult, isn't it, not to allow our own sense of self to be shaped by the judgments that others make of us, whether they're judgments made by people who are well known to us or perhaps by those who we barely know. Some judgments are offered to us openly and directly. We know exactly what the other person is thinking of us by what they say or how they act. Others can judge us passively, maybe damning us with faint praise. Judgment can be passed in the asking of loaded questions or even by the pointed silences that are left uncomfortably hanging in the middle of conversation. Today's passage is what you could say a pretty complex web of people making judgments about one another. Now, you don't have to make sense of this diagram on the screen. It's just something that I was working through. Um, It's still up there. It's just something that I was working through, trying to understand the way in which all the different characters in today's chapter were relating to one another. And each of those lines with an arrow represents a judgment that is made by one person toward another. Actually, there's a few others that I couldn't figure out how to fit in there uh, as well. There's over 16 judgments that are made from one group of characters to another over the course of this single chapter. Some of these judgments are offered as self-judgments, the person judging themselves, making an assessment of themselves. Some are judgments that are communicated only in action. Some are directly spoken judgments. Some are judgments that are framed just in the form of a question, asked. Other judgments are expressed just in fearful silence, not a word spoken at all. And today's passage that we had read to us a moment ago begins with Jesus' own disciples faced with a situation that they don't quite know how to go about judging correctly or accurately. They don't know how to approach this judgment of another person who is before them. Have a look with me at our opening verses, the opening paragraph It's chapter 9 of John's Gospel, and I'll read from verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The disciples seem predisposed, just inclined, to judge people on account of the fates 
that have befallen them. So this man's blindness must be connected somehow to how they should assess him and understand who he is, what kind of person he might be. And yet, this man was blind. He suffered this fate of blindness even from before the moment that he was born, before he could really deserve the kind of fate that had befallen him. So how are they to understand this man's status before God and the fate that has befallen him? The best the disciples can judge is perhaps that it's someone else's wrong that is to blame for this man's blindness? Perhaps the man's parents? Jesus' response, though, is to insist that the man's blindness is ultimately going to reveal more about God than it does either about the man himself or the man's parents. Notice there that Jesus speaks about this being daytime versus the night. You might recall when, from the Exodus reading, when God was present with Israel... They were so anxious that he had to be covered in a dark cloud that hid his presence from them. Well, here there's this light and dark language still here in John's Gospel as well. As Jesus lives and works, he describes that moment in time as day. He does say that there's a time coming when it'll be night, when people won't be able to perceive God working, but that's not this time. But exactly what kind of work of God is Jesus saying, should be made visible while he is here amongst them? What kind of work of God will be made visible in this blind man? Uh, Perhaps, and I don't think this is the only thing to take away, and we'll we'll glance about this uh, a little bit later on this morning, but perhaps the work of God Jesus is referring to, maybe it's this man's healing? I don't think it's only that. But perhaps it is at least partly this man's healing. Jesus certainly wastes no time getting his hands dirty, does he? Have a look with me at verse 6 to see how he carries on. This time, less in words and more in action. After saying this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I wonder what thoughts must have flashed through the mind of that blind man as he heard Jesus hawk up some phlegm and felt the cool of the mud settling on both his eyes. What's going on here? Why not simply heal with a word or heal with a touch as Jesus has done on so many other occasions previously and will do again following The word for mud used here is the same word that's often used for clay. The word used in describing God's forming us out of the dust of the ground, ideas borrowed from Genesis and the account of humanity's very creation in the beginning. You might remember that John's Gospel began with allusions to the start of creation in Genesis. But it's used in other parts of the uh, New Testament as well. Uh, Have a look at this this, um, verse that's up on the screen from Romans chapter 9, and I've forgotten to have it printed here beside me. Are you able to show it up on that screen so I can read it? No, it doesn't matter, I'll just read it from up here. Uh, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay or mud some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? When we realise, just a few verses down in verse 16, this action that Jesus performs took place on the Sabbath, 
the day that celebrated the completion of God's creative work that was capped with the creation of humankind, the significance of this mucus-muddied miracle, I think, begins to become clear for us. Jesus is doing the work of the divine potter, reforming human life from the dust of the earth and doing so in a manner that will ultimately display the riches of his glory. Just as Paul would speak about in that Romans passage, so Jesus here. God's creative work in this man, restoring him, will display his glory in more way than one. The significance of Jesus playing in the dirt, though, seems at first glance to provoke more questions than it does provide answers. Questions firstly about the man himself, but more importantly, questions about Jesus. It's a miracle so unexpected that it leaves people questioning whether they can even trust the judgment of their own eyes, what their own eyes see. I wonder if you notice that in verses 8 to 9, people are questioning whether this man really is the guy who they know, their neighbour who'd been blind from birth, or whether he just looks like him, whether they can trust the testimony, the witness of their own eyes. But down in verses 13 to 17, which we're going to turn to read now, the questions shift quickly to the identity of who it is who has healed this man. Uh, have a look with me, verse 13. After the neighbours had been debating whether or not this was the man that they knew from birth, we read verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The interrogation that begins in these verses continues on almost for the remainder of this entire episode, for the rest of the chapter almost. Uh, you might remember last week back in chapter 8, the Pharisees, they were the religious specialists, they were the experts in the scriptures in Jesus' day. They had objected to Jesus testifying about himself. They'd objected to Jesus proclaiming who he was in relation to God the Father who had sent him. They said, you can't just testify on your own behalf, you need another witness to also corroborate your statements about yourself. And here, the Pharisees have found someone who is willing and able to also testify about Jesus. We'll see that as it plays out over the chapter. Initially, when he was asked back in verse 10 to 11, who had healed him, the man had simply replied, the man they called Jesus, the man they called Jesus. It's about as non-committal an answer as you can get, isn't it? It's an assessment he gives, first of all, of how others think about this man who had healed him. But now, now that he's dragged before the religious authorities, the formerly bland blind man sorry, seems to have upgraded his assessment of Jesus. He is a prophet, the blind man affirms, before the panel of Pharisees, who are no doubt questioning him looking down on him at the same time. And this mustn't have been the sort of answer that the Pharisees were hoping to get from him. 
for they quickly turned to interrogate the man's parents. We won't read through this uh, this morning, but I wonder if you recall from the reading, they turned to call in the parents to interrogate them, hoping that they will discredit the notion that this man really had been born blind. They hope that the parents will affirm, no, 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 you've got your guys mixed up. There's been a confusion here. But when that strategy bears no fruit, the the parents will find out later why, they they just want to avoid giving an answer at all, the Pharisees returned to questioning the the blind man, the formerly blind mind, for a second time, hoping that they might spiritually intimidate him into recanting his favourable witness to Jesus as a prophet. And the move kind of backfires. Have a look with me at verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. The formerly blind man spots the trap that has been laid out for him a mile off. He at first refuses to be sucked into making any kind of theological judgment that would spiritually discredit Jesus as a sinner. He doesn't want any part of that. He says, whether or not Jesus is a sinner, I I don't know. I'll leave that for other people to comment on. He simply wants to restate the facts of what he himself had experienced and witnessed. But the religious leaders won't let him dodge the question that easily. Recycling the same old questions, just repeating the same ones they'd already asked, they push for a different answer from the man. Maybe they're attempting to psychologically wear him down. Perhaps they're hoping, just like, you know, the police officers on those crime shows, that by repeatedly asking the question, they'll cause him to trip up and make a mistake as he has to answer the questions over and over again. Whatever it is going on, they want a different answer. Have a look with me at verse 26. Verse 26. Then they asked him, What did he do? What did Jesus do to you? How did Jesus open your eyes? The formerly blind man answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to perhaps become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does God's will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were from, not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. What's quite sobering as we read the climax of this debate, this conflict is that back in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we had read about a Pharisee named Nicodemus who had come to Jesus on behalf of this very same group of Pharisees and he, Nicodemus, had declared these words about Jesus. He'd said, We know, Jesus, that you are a teacher who has come from God. 
For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. It's exactly the same thing that this blind man is now testifying, isn't it? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In today's passage, the formerly blind man confesses the very same thing that the Pharisees themselves had once confessed. Yet not only do they kick him out of the synagogue, the synagogue was effectively kind of like a church. Uh, In the day of Jesus, uh, many people considered that the temple's worship was corrupt. And so the Pharisees had set up synagogues all over Israel in order that the scriptures could be read and people could connect with God through his word. That's who the Pharisees were. But here they are kicking the blind man out of the synagogues. But not only that, they also labeled him a sinner publicly judging him as someone who was opposed to God, who was opposed to God's word. To all appearances, the threatening judgments of the Pharisees seem to be winning the day. We'll read in a few chapters' time, actually, that even the Jewish leaders who did believe in Jesus lacked the courage to confess their belief as boldly as this formerly blind man had done. Uh, Up on the screen, uh, we'll have a look. Chapter 12, uh, verse 42 uh, is where I'll read. Chapter 12, verse 42. We read, Many even among the leaders, that is, amongst the Jewish leaders, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And why did they fear being put out of the synagogue? For they loved human praise more than praise from God. That's sobering, isn't it? The desire for human praise, the longing for human acknowledgement, even in the place where God's word was weakly read, the short-sighted judgments of other mere mortals, human beings, were what people allowed most to define them. It was fear of losing the praise and the acknowledgement of other humans that led even the Jewish leaders to cower in silence before the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus. I started off this morning with that little diagram of that web of judgments uh, that seems to characterise the various relationships that this chapter plays out. And I imagine if you sat down for a moment and drew a web of judgments for your own life, your own interactions, even just for today, it'd probably be just about as complicated, maybe even more so. We are shaped, aren't we? By the direct and the implicit and even the unspoken judgments that others have towards us. And often our fears and our anxieties about those judgments and those assessments of us, we allow them to define us more than anything else. And yet here the sobering point that John makes in chapter 12 is that it had been the judgment of other humans, mere mortals, that people were allowing to define how they saw themselves, who they were, rather than allowing God's assessment to define them. Jesus certainly isn't insensitive to the pressures that we face, these web of judgments that surround us. He certainly isn't insensitive to the treatment that this formerly blind man has suffered as a result of his boldly declaring trust in Jesus. Have a look with me at how Jesus actually seeks out this man 
following these events. Verse 35 is where we're at. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. What exactly is going on in this odd little exchange at the end of these events? What exactly is Jesus getting at when he asks the formerly blind man whether he believes in the Son of Man? Where did this question even arise from? Now, the Son of Man is a figure from the Old Testament to whom God delegates his own divine authority to judge. Uh, we see the figure of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, for instance. We saw that last year as we were working our way through the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man was a human being who exercises God's own authority in judging and assessing humankind. Back in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, we'd already read these words. Uh, we read there that the Father has given the Son the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. I think this is what's going on in this little episode here, this little closing conversation between Jesus and the man. Jesus is saying, don't worry about the judgments of those spiritual clowns, the Pharisees. I, I am the Son of Man. I'm the one who judges with the Father's authority. I'm the one who speaks God's assessment of those who are before me. Find comfort in my praise, in my judgment, Jesus says, not in the praise of men. Jesus has found this guy who's just been kicked out of his spiritual community, out of the synagogue, and he comforts him with the assurance, it's me, the Son of Man, who speaks God's assessment, not the Pharisees who have excommunicated you, so to speak, from the Christian community or the Jewish community that you're a part of. Find comfort in my praise, says Jesus, not the praise of men. I wonder whose judgments we find most comfort and assurance in. Perhaps we could find the answer to that question by asking, whose judgments do we most fear coming out on the wrong side of? For it's them that will often pour all our emotion, our energy into pleasing, into satisfying. It's them that will often allow to most shape and define who we are. And yet Jesus says here, I'm the son of man. I'm the one who shares God's own assessment. Trust in me. And that's exactly what the man does. He gets down on the ground and worships. For this reason, Jesus says, I came into the world. I came into the world to cast God's light, to expose the darkened judgments of prideful men for what they really are. And this is how Jesus sums up this whole episode uh, down in verse 39. Have a look there with me as we finish out the chapter. Verse 39. <clears throat> Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What we see here is that the one who began this passage physically blind, who was judged to be a sinner by human authorities, ends the episode with 2020 vision, spiritually speaking. He sees and recognises in the Lord Jesus the one who exercises God's own authority, God's assessment, God's judgment. And those who boldly claim for themselves perfect spiritual vision, who claim that they could offer God's assessment accurately, completely, are ultimately judged to be guilty of willful blindness. And I think this, even more than the healing of the man's physical blindness, I think this is actually the work of God that Jesus came to perform, to expose those human judgments that are accurate, that are in line with God's way of thinking, and those that are not. How we respond to Jesus brings to light how we respond to God himself. Uh, out the back of the church, you, you might not be able to get out there, especially with the kids at the moment, because we do have a lot of scaffolding up, uh, but there's a, a, a massive shrub, it's a hydrangea shrub, just in the corner, one of the, the little corners uh, out the back of the church building. Um, hydrangeas are really interesting plants in that the pH of the soil will determine what colour flowers will be produced on the bush when it comes to flowering season. And if you want to predict what kind of coloured flower a hydrangea is going to produce in any given season, if you test the pH of the soil, the acidity, the acidity of the soil, you'll be able to accurately predict exactly what kind of coloured flowers are going to be produced when it comes time for the fruiting, so to speak. And as we work through John's Gospel, we see the same kind of thing going on in Jesus' own ministry. His presence amongst people, his light, his being light in the midst of a darkened world, provokes people in a way that will predict how they will react to God himself. Just as the pH test can predict what kind of flower is going to be produced, how people respond to Jesus will predict accurately how they would respond to God himself. And we see here those who claim to have the clearest vision actually being blind to God's work in the world. And those who had been dismissed as sinners, as being spiritually blind and untrustworthy, actually clearly seeing Jesus for who he is and reflecting, therefore, their knowledge of God himself. For some of us, Jesus will still be a bit of an enigma. Sorry about that. A curiosity, a confusion. Someone we don't yet quite know what to make of. That's the case for you. Grab me after the service, send me an email. You'll be able to do that. Um, Heath will mention a little bit later on via a QR code. You can get in touch with us. I'd love to meet up with you and just read through some of the Gospels to give you the opportunity to see Jesus and to respond to him. Because as you engage with him, you are engaging with God himself, making himself known. And for all those of you who already recognize in the Lord Jesus, God himself become flesh. Draw comfort from this, that he is the son of man. 
Whatever other judgments people might seek to define us by, it's only his assessment of us that will ultimately carry the day. And like that blind man who was kicked out of the synagogue and dismissed, Jesus will hold us fast as well if we entrust ourselves to him and to his judgments. Let's pray that that would be so. Dearest Father, we are frail beings, far more susceptible to the judgments of others than we often like to confess or admit. We confess the times in which we allow even our own self-judgments, let alone the judgments of others, to make us anxious to identify ourselves too closely with you, that we pull back from you. And yet, Father, in the Lord Jesus, we see that you draw near to complete and to heal us. That those who confess you will never be turned away from you, but will be comforted and protected. Father, we ask that you would train our hearts and our minds and our souls to entrust ourselves to your assessment, to your judgment, and find comfort and security in doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.